Now, last June, I was looking back, and in times of preparation for what's ahead for us, it was last June that we as a church family started to dig into the book of Nehemiah. And we studied uh, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 8 and 9, and we studied the book of Nehemiah, let us rise up and build. It was in preparation for what we were doing here on property in doing the major property advancement project. Now, some of you have come since that time, and so when you see some of these things in place, you don't necessarily realize all that has happened within the last 12 months. The office building over there, the modular building was not there. That used to be just a grassy area with the old beat-up playground behind it. And uh, so we took all of that out, put in a brand-new playground, and put in the office building. Then we were enabled, that enabled us to be able to begin this project inside here where we tore out the old restrooms, all of the office spaces, and we began the renovation. Now, here we are midstream, and we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It is coming. And, uh, and one of the things that is really holding them up week after week are those lovely storms of rain that just come at every part of the day. Used to be just like 30 minutes in the afternoon. A little storm would come through, we'd get all wet, and it'd move on. You can keep doing your day. But this summer's been really weird. We're getting a lot of different rain. So that slows down the project a little bit, and you have noticed that we're kind of getting a little bit further into the fall season than we had hoped to be. Uh, We were certainly projecting the project to be done. Uh, But that, after project one is done, we pray about phase two and what that all looks like in here, and uh, with our seating, our carpet, our ceiling, our lighting, our platform, our baptistry, there's a lot of things that still need to be touched. So as a church family, It's really important for us to make sure that we keep everything in balance. Every local church is limited in its resources. We understand that. And when we say that a church is limited in its resources, we don't just mean finances. We mean that in our our focus and in our concentration and our passions. That's why from the very beginning we set a purpose statement that says everything we do and why we do fits into love God, love people. And when it falls into that, then that becomes something that we are motivated by, something we become passionate about, and something that we can continue forward. When we looked at the property advancement project, it was something that was uh, designed to be a tool, not to make a name for ourselves in the community and not just to have a Taj Mahal by any means, but something that is just simply a tool that can be used to break down barriers for the community to find a place that does things decently and in order and strives for excellence to be a picture of who our God really is. That's why we do what we do. And so now here we are uh, looking at some needed updates in, in your hand, meaning you need to know what's going on, where we've been, where we are, where we hope to be. And so next Sunday, we're going to have a presentation in Sunday morning service that will give you an update on how everything has happened and what we're hoping is in the future. We'll show you the giving as our church has been giving uh, through these last several months. I think our launch was back in last September, and now we are coming up to that one-year mark where we made our commitments, and now we need to recommit. And so at the end of this month, in the month month of August, on August 26th, we'll do a renewing the rebuilding, and we'll do an offering and a commitment so that we can partner together to finish this project and uh, to use it for God's glory. So with that in mind, I've been thinking and praying, Lord, where do we go through the month of August? I had hoped that we were going to dig into 1 Thessalonians and look at a countercultural church and really study that passage together from now until the Christmas season. But God began to shape our heart and mind for the month of August to do something a little bit different, 
and to go in a different direction. And so that's why today we're launching a new series that I've entitled Renewing the Rebuilding and looking at the book of Haggai. And so let's all turn together. Now you say, where in the world is Haggai and what is Haggai? So that's a prophet. He's a minor prophet in the last part of the Old Testament. If you go to Matthew and then jump back four books, you'll find Haggai, or three books, you'll find Haggai uh, there in the last part of the Old Testament. If you're still having trouble, it's page 1010, okay? So that's, uh, that might help you today. Now, if you'd like to follow along with notes today, we do have them online, parkwaybaptist.org. You can click on latest message. You can have the notes digitally in front of you. You can edit those and update them as you go and send those to yourself at the end. I'm not sure if we got hard copy of notes out today. Did we get hard copies? Okay, we're good. So you guys have them in your hand. So today, as we launch this series in Haggai, I'm going to be honest with you. In preparation, this is both exciting and apprehensive. I'm very apprehensive digging into Haggai. For several reasons, let me first tell you why I'm excited, because we're going to learn some things together about this small minor prophet kind of nestled into the last part of the Old Testament. And so the power of God's Word is going to shape us and teach us, and that's always an exciting thing as we study God's Word together. We open our hearts and ears and we say, God, use this in some way to shape me, to change me, to mold me, to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. So that, of course, is an exciting part. The part that I'm really apprehensive about and nervous about is taking an Old Testament prophet or an Old Testament book and trying to look at some of the things that are there in that text and being very careful not to correlate those with 21st century church and say, what happened here is exactly what's happening now, and therefore this is how we should respond. Because we know that the Old Testament prophets is, were written and were spoken to specifically God's people, the Israelites. And so as Haggai is used by God to speak a very bold message, he's going to give several sermonettes along the way through chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I want us to be very careful as we approach this text because I want us to correctly dissect it, correctly expound on it, and correctly apply it to who we are today as God's church doing our very best to make an impact. And so for the next four weeks, we will carefully go through this it would be very easy to take some of what the text is going to give us and, and connect it with the rebuilding of a church building or to say that this is exactly where the Israelites are and it's where we are and what we need to do. But I want you to be willing to go through this series as we study what the prophet of Haggai says and let's just be moldable together, okay? So let me lay some groundwork about what Haggai is, the book, and why it's written and what's going on. So in 538 B.C., long time ago, Cyrus from Persia, he issued a decree that allowed the Jews to be freed from the Babylonian exile, and they were able to go back to their cities. They were able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple that had already been destroyed. So this first return that we're going to study today was led by Zerubbabel. He was the governor of Judah, and so he led this first return, not of all of the Jews. They were not all returning from the Babylonian exile, but many of them were And they had great excitement and ambition to get back to town to rebuild the temple. Now, remember that this text is some 90 years before the book of Nehemiah. Now, last June, we studied Nehemiah. When we think of rebuilding, we think of Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and how this all corresponds and connects together. But we are 90 years before that event took place. Now, the scene of all the action is right there in the city of Jerusalem, 
The Babylonian exile is behind the Jews. They are coming in as a group. They're returning back and they start this rebuilding. Now, if you want some background to this book, I encourage you this week to read and study Ezra chapter 1 through 6. That gives you background. It kind of gives you the prequel. It gives you the movie scene right before Haggai jumps onto the scene and what's taking place. And that would really help you to see that the Israelites were even facing a ton of opposition while they're doing the rebuilding project of the temple. Okay, so now 16 years after the rebuilding project of the temple began, the people have yet to finish the project. Now, they have not been working on it for 16 years. They only worked on it for two years. And they were so overwhelmed by all of the opposition, they were so overwhelmed by the task at hand that they gave up two years in. And for 14 years, they've been working on their own houses, their own lives, and their own ambitions. So when Haggai comes onto the scene to give these messages from God, he is coming to a group of people who are discouraged, They are disheartened, and for sure, their spirits are dampened by the desolate conditions they are facing in Jerusalem. So they had initial optimism and excitement when they came in. It's much like a building project that we face even today. Last August, we launched a building project, and we said, we're going to start here. Let's all make our commitments. Let's all give. And so we all prayed together, we were excited, we had optimism, we saw the project ahead, we couldn't wait to, to use the new restrooms or to hang out in the new uh, lobby or to have the new porticos and entry points and to have a new facelift on the front of the building. There was a lot of excitement built up as the vision was casted, we bought into it, we invested in it, and we were all about that. We made our commitments, we gave our offering, and we were a part of what God was doing. Now, we have not thrown everything aside and run, become discouraged The rain doesn't discourage us. The long, drawn-out process doesn't discourage us. Nothing has dampened our spirits. The project still moves forward. People are still investing, and people are still giving. But what happened with the Israelites is that the attacks of the enemy and the hardships that they faced, two years into the project, instead of facing the enemy head-on, they just threw away their tools, and they gave up. And so the pessimism led to to a spiritual laziness. The people are now living in carnality, and they become preoccupied with their own ambitions, really with their own building projects. It's in this context that God calls his prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the book right after this one. God calls both of these prophets to communicate to his people, the Israelites, and uh, urging them to complete the temple building. And that is where we pick up in verse number one of our text. Now, as we read verse number one, Let me give you a timeline. It's September 1st, 520 B.C. That's what verse 1 tells us. It's September 1st, 520 B.C., 16 years after they started the temple project. Look at verse number 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel and unto Joshua. Now, this Joshua is uh, not the Joshua who led the children of Israel into the promised land. That's Joshua, the son of Nun. This is Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. Uh, Joshua is the high priest, and this is what Haggai says, verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses or your paneled houses, and this house lie in waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
Now today we're going to look at all of these verses in chapter number 1, 1 through 15. As we come to each of those sections, we'll read those verses, we'll see what the Word of God says, and see how it transforms our mind and helps us with this building. Now this morning, I want us to pause and have a word of prayer. And again, our desire is to ask God to give us correct discernment as we teach this and as we dissect it, asking the Lord to, to, to shape our hearts and minds. So this morning, we look at this text, and the question that we ask is, do you really care? That's the question that became to the Israelites at that moment. Do you really care? And so let's ask God for guidance. Father, we humbly come before you today. Not as great theologians, but as servants before you, asking for your guidance and wisdom. So we need the Holy Spirit's teaching to us today. And I ask that as your church and as your people, you will shape us. Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus Christ in a very personal way, they've never had their life transformed and renewed, Lord, I pray that today would be that day that they would have clear understanding May there be something in the text today that draws their attention to the grace of God, the love of Jesus that can save their soul for all eternity. For the Christians all across this room, would you help us to remove the, the barricades or the, uh, the concerns that maybe we have as we begin in this text? But may we let down our guards and uh, be open and transparent and moldable today. So we ask for that in Jesus' name, amen. Now, you can clearly see and understand why it is very important for us as we study a text like this to not take something out of context and try to magically fit it into modern day circumstances. We're not going to try to take a square peg and fit it into a round hole because the text here is referring not to the church building of today, but rather to the house of the Lord or the temple of yesterday for the Israelites. Remember that we as believers in Christ, those who have committed ourselves with our complete faith in Him alone for our salvation, we now are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We, as our bodies, have become the dwelling place of God in us. And so the temple was the place of the focal point of the Israelites' worship. It was the place where they met with God. It was the place where it was the dwelling place of God. That's why the temple was so important in Old Testament times that God would impress upon their heart to go to rebuild and bring back this place of dwelling place of God, a place to meet with God, and a place that is the house of God. But as the New Testament teach us, teaches us about the church building, that this is a place where the local church can meet. It becomes a place where we can corporately worship together. It facilitates the niceties of our day. We can have some padded seats and air condition. We can have electricity, sound system, and running water. And those become the niceties that help us. And we really cherish the building that we're in. But the versatility of a building like this is that it's just simply four walls. If you travel to West Africa with me and we go to Togo, we'll find that their church building looks nothing like this. It doesn't have padded pews, it doesn't have air conditioning flowing, and it certainly doesn't have running water, but yet you have a church who meets there and worships God because they're together as the church corporately worshiping. So let's not get into our mindset that says they weren't finishing the house of God, we must make sure we're finishing the house of God. That's not the context today, that's not the direction of our message. God, the Father, created our bodies, God the Son redeemed our bodies, and God the Holy Spirit indwells them. So this makes our body the very temple of the Holy Spirit of God. This gives us a clear perspective of another reason why it's so important for us to take 
good care of our bodies and to use them for God's glory so that we become billboards and messengers of God's grace so that we can become something clearly as a living testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done in transforming our hearts. There's some great lessons though as we learn by observing the Israelites here. Because you say, well, all the groundwork you've laid, we've gone into history class or we've gone into a Bible class and we've learned all the history about where we're at with this passage. And you've told us very clearly that the text we're reading is not relevant to us in the 21st century. But let's understand that as we observe the Israelites of yesterday, there are so many crucial lessons that we can learn and apply to our lives today. That's why the Word of God is given to us. That's why there's a whole council of the Word of God. There's a, the whole part of it. Every part was inspired and given to us. It's been preserved. And now as a gift given for us to read, to digest, and to learn and be shaped by. So let's carefully do that together. In verses 1 through 4, the first lesson that we learn from the Israelites today is to renew our vision. God is first. In those verses we just read, he says, Is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses, your paneled houses, your nice built and prepared houses, and the house of God lies in waste? So this introduction is a little unique as verse 1 gives us a timeline. It's a little unique from other prophets, minor prophets like uh, Nahum and Habakkuk, but it shows us that there's a very significance in the time and there's a significance in the men that God will use. God uses men as tools and as servants. Uh, God is using a man by the name of Haggai, using a man by the name of Zerubbabel, a man by, the name, man by the name Joshua. These are men that are leaders within this context, and they are used by God as tools and as servants to be the messengers. Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, God is not absent from dealing with mankind and he recognizes that there is influence in leadership. So there's always somebody that's going to cast the vision. There's somebody who is going to lead the people. There's somebody who's going to be the messenger of God's word. There's, there's going to be somebody that we can look to as a leader that we can follow after. Good leaders are not just a part of motivating, but they're inspiring when you think about this motivation, motivation is one of those things where I have to motivate myself to get up early, or I have to motivate myself to eat right, or I have to motivate myself to exercise, or I have to motivate myself to smile and be nice, right? Those are things that we try to motivate ourselves. It's a little bit of work, and it's something that we, we try to do. It's something that's natural, but it's something that we try to do. Then there's influence on the other hand, and then influence is one that as we continue to cast vision, as we continue to have conversation, and as we continue to interact with people, the influence says that I want you to go. It, it's going to the next place. It is, it is that inspiration. It is saying, let's go together. So we're not motivated as a church to make a difference in our community because motivated to make a difference means that it's not natural and something that we have to really work on. No, it's something that we fall back into the love of Jesus. Remember, we studied this last week at the end of uh, the book of Jude. We talked about being in the love of Jesus, and when we're in the love of Jesus, we can't help but be inspired. 
We can't help but want to make a difference. We can't help but want to do something with the gospel. We can't help but want our place to be warm and welcoming. We can't help but serving on ministry teams so that I make an impact and I make a difference. When we are inspired with the theme, the goal, the vision, we can't help but plugging in and being a runner, a participant of that very thing that we're inspired by. So here... God is going to use men not to motivate, but to inspire. And in verse number two, really gets us into the thesis of this chapter. He says in, in verse number two, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. This phrase gets right to the heart of the problem and reveals the real issues, that excuses were being made by the Israelites. What do you mean the time has not come? It's been 16 years since you were removed from the Babylonian exile. What do you mean, Christian, and it's not time for you to plug in? You have sat, you have soaked, and it is time to plug in and serve. What do you mean that the time is not now? God is looking at them saying, you have made one excuse after another. It is time to invest. It is time to plug in. It is time to look past yourself and to be stretched and to be pushed and to be inspired to do something different. So the whole thesis statement wrapped up in verse number 12, it gives this direction. It tells us what needs to be done. It's God addressing the issue, and this is so crucial and very important. Now, wouldn't it be convenient here in verses 1 through 4 to just hone in for the next hour and talk about the building project? Wouldn't it be easy to do that? Wouldn't it be easy to say, verses 1 through 4, the Israelites didn't rebuild the temple in the house of God, and God was against it, and he confronted the issue. So church, we've got to gear up. We've got to invest. We've got to give. We've got to build. We've got to construct. We need to pray. We need to be doing something about that mess back there. We're tired of this wall. We're tired of all of that. Let's do something. It'd be very convenient. But that's not the context for us today in 21st century. But I do want us to understand that there is purpose and reason because when we're in love with God, we're going to remember what was said in Matthew 6.33. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Well, remember what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and he said, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things. If you're saved and you're a follower of Christ, then seek, look for those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So the internal investments that we're involved in day in and day out become our complete affection. It becomes everything that we pursue. It does become our motivation, but it's even more, it's our inspiration. And it tells us to go after those eternal rewards and investments. The Israelites, they didn't have the New Testament in their hand. They were not reminded about seeking first the kingdom of God. They weren't thinking about setting their affections on things above. But remember what God told them very pointedly. Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said, now these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither you go and possess it. So he said, when you get into the promised land, you're done wandering the wilderness for 40 years, and, uh, and, and your, your, your generation of complainers and murmurers die off, and a new generation goes with Joshua and Caleb into the promised land. Remember this key teaching. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. That's putting God first. Every bit of that 
They were not guilt-driven nor performance-driven, but rather love-driven. So they weren't doing things out of indebtedness. They were not doing things out of guilt. They were to do it because they loved God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. God fully understands the hearts and motives of everyone. And so we can't fool God. And in the end, everything comes down to the matter of our priorities. As a part of God's local church, we have the priorities. Remember, we talked about limited resources. We have limited concentration. We have limited energies. We have limited finances. We have limited times. And in the midst of all of that limitation, we have to find what is going to be our priorities. So as a church body, as a church movement, we have to make sure that we're pinpointing what the priorities are going to be. And then those priorities get our concentration. It becomes now everything that we do. That's why, and it's sometimes you may feel like we say it too often or we say it over and over again, but that is why the the teaching of Jesus of loving God and loving people is very important because the Great Commission feeds out of loving God, loving people. Giving to missions feeds out of loving God, loving people. Making an impact in our community comes out of loving God, loving people. Connecting and fellowship, growing discipleship, and and all of that comes and feeds out of loving God and loving people. So our priority helps us to see that there's something greater here than myself. And that's where God pointedly addresses this by asking them, Why do you spend so much time on your own ambitions? Why are you spending so much time on your own concentration, your own thing, when God's house lies in waste? So the question becomes for all of us as we move on from this point, is that what is it in our life that has become an obstacle, a distraction, a hurdle that keeps us from renewing our vision and making sure that God is always first? Crazy busy lives we live, aren't they? And in the midst of that busyness, we have a lot of performances that we try to excel at. As a parent, I want my child to be perfect, and I I want them to excel, and I want the church family to see them and think they're good little girls. And then in the school, we want them to ace, and, and we want them to excel. And all of a sudden, the pressure then that I'm living in poured onto them, and, and we get distracted with these crazy things in our life. And you and I fall into those traps daily. We fall into the traps of trying to perform for God so that we can gain His acceptance. And if I can do enough for God, I will gain His approval and His stamp for this week. So I've got all of that pressure. Then we say, I'm indebted to God. I mean, look at what He's given me. His son Jesus died on the cross for my sins and extended salvation to me, changed my life so drastically, and now I'm indebted to him. Isn't that what we hear? Isn't that what we tell ourselves? Isn't that what we try to convince why I live my Christian life? Because really, I have no other choice. I mean, in the mailbox yesterday, I got my debt payment from God, and I have to be at church on Sunday morning because he gave me salvation. I have to be a Sunday school teacher. I mean, I have to plug into a ministry team. I mean, I I have to tell my neighbor. I mean, I owe it to God to tell my neighbor about his love and salvation. And all of a sudden, then everything that we're motivated by becomes this indebtedness. But remember, the gift of salvation was a free gift with no strings attached. And then what happens with that salvation is we realize that as I live in the love of God, 
I'm motivated, and I'm inspired. So I'm not living day to day based on indebtedness. I'm not living day to day by the pressures of, uh, of performance. I'm going to be solely love-driven. And when I'm love-driven, I can't help but have a renewed vision that says God is always first. Now let's look at verse 5 and 6. Because here, we're going to see secondly our renewing of courage. God's promises are sure. In verse 5 and 6, he says, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Give attention to your ways. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but you are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Skip down to verse number 9. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man into his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed with, from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called from a, for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon the labor of the hands. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, with all the remnant of the people... They obeyed the voice of the Lord. What's interesting here is you see that God's promises are sure. This renewing of our courage, verses 5 and 6, 9 through 11, don't give a, a lot of hope here. But Haggai is going to summon the people to examine their lifestyle. He's going to summon them to examine their actions in comparison to the covenant of God. And God made this covenant with them before the nation even entered into the land of Canaan. And when he says, consider your ways, it's to give careful thought to, give careful attention to. As a child, you, you know in ch child rearing, and, and um, before they get ready to touch something that you've already told them not to, and you've slapped their hand, you said, look at daddy. I said, no, you do not touch. Then you back away, give them that opportunity. Ah, 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 ah. I said, no, do not touch. Consider your ways. Now, you don't use that phrase. You don't say, give close attention to what you're about to do. But you see that same analogy is to give that swiftness that says, pay close attention to what you are deciding to do. Consider your ways. Haggai says to the children of Israel to pay close attention to what they're doing. Evaluate, examine. Examine their actions, their lifestyle. Examine their motives and why they do this. This was a command to do some serious self-examination. And we're to consider our ways. Not the ways of others, but rather a personal call to a heart search. What if you had to consider your ways? How many of you would be willing to say, don't raise your hand, but you can even come to grips with yourself. You're better at considering the ways of other people. Like, well, so-and-so missed another Sunday. Or... I see they bought a brand new car. Oh, I see they're building this house. Oh, I see they're doing this. And all of a sudden, we begin to consider other people's ways. We begin to do examination on other people when we're supposed to be considering our own ways. You know, I, I, I put this in bold in my notes. I hate self-examination because you know what it reveals is self-contamination. And I'm tired of seeing that. And what has to come, where I have to come to grips with is that I need to be looking for self-motivation uh, to pursue that restoration. So 
What's easy to say is I will bypass the examination because I don't want to see the contamination, but I need to come to grips with being motivated to be restored. So the, the Israelites were being halted here. People, consider your ways, take note, look. They faced opposition. You would think they had an easy excuse. They had the Samaritans writing letters to the Persian kings saying that the Israelites in Jerusalem are rebuilding the temple and they're also going to try to overcome Persia and they're going to try to overtake you. So the Samaritans, as the enemy of the Israelites, are writing these letters. They faced opposition. They faced the beating down of the hot sun working day in and day out. They faced complaints. They faced inter-conflict. There was a lot that they had to face. And you'd think they had an easy excuse, but God calls them out and says, time is up. Why are you still lagging behind? Renew your courage and remember the promises I made. God had given the covenant promise before they entered Israel uh, into the promised land. And God said, this will happen. I will bless. I will provide. I will take care. But we also see that We've got to remember that God never made a prosperity promise to the church. He made a prosperity promise to the children of Israel. You obey, I will bless. You disobey, I will bring reproach. It's right there in the text. We find that what happened is they lost their courage and they became very distracted and they forgot God's promise and God said, I'm going to bring judgment on you. I held back the dew from the land. I caused there to be a great drought. You earned your wages, put them in a bag with holes in it. You had drink, but it didn't fulfill you. You had food, but it never filled you. He said, I brought it to man, I brought it to your cattle, I brought it to all parts of your land because you disobeyed and I bring the punishment. But I'm thankful that that covenant that he made with Israel is not the covenant that transfers to the church today, okay? Remember, the church is not Israel. We're, we're, we're separate. But there are a lot of lessons we learn from Israel. But what we look at with the church today is that Jesus died for the church and Jesus gave his life for the church. And the promise that he gave was not prosperity, obey and I pour out material blessings. And that's what some televangelists want us to learn today. If you touch the screen, I'll bless you. If you give hundreds of dollars to our ministry, we'll bless you. God will bless you and this will come. So we're not speaking on prosperity. We're not asking you to invest in a property advancement project so that God enables your bank account to grow. That, that's just not how God works. But we're also not asking you to feel guilty day in and day out when you buy an extra coffee at Starbucks or go through McDonald's to get an ice cold cup of of Coke. Uh, We're not asking you to feel guilty because you have some things in your life that you enjoy and that you do. Uh, Some in here have newer cars, some have newer houses, some have newer wardrobes, some have things that God has blessed you with. And wealth is, is not a separating point. Wealth becomes what do you do with it as God blesses you with it. So here we remember what Jesus said. Very first words in his Sermon on the Mount, he was saying phrases like, Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. We think, whoa, wait a minute. Something's different here. Because this obedience should bring blessing. God, I gave in the offering plate on Sunday, but seven days have passed, and I haven't seen this huge increase in blessing in my bank account. On the other side of things, there were three bills that showed up in my mailbox. You know what I've started doing? I don't even go to my mailbox anymore. So I'm just like, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of bills. They keep calling me for some reason, but I just think they want to chat. 
Okay, that's not a true story, okay? So don't mark that down. <laughs> Verses 9 to 11 show us that with Israel, he did make this covenant. And he did promise that if you obey, I would material bless. But when you choose to disobey, you will suffer material loss. So God's promises are sure, and that renews our courage today. Don't grab scripture out of context. Don't take Philippians 4.19 and claim that as your life verse. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So I will live my life the way I need to and want to. And God's going to be my fall guy and he'll take care of everything. Remember, Paul was writing to the Christians at the church in Philippi. And they were investors in God's ministry. These were men and women who were continually investing financially. They were investing emotionally. They were investing in prayer. And they were doing all of this to help Paul to travel the world as a missionary. They were doing all of this to make an impact there in Philippi as the local church. They were sacrificing and giving. That's why Paul could say, hey guys there at the church, don't forget that because you're a giver and you have such a giving spirit and you constantly are being stretched in your faith, God will supply your need. He's not going to let anything happen. He won't let anything go by. Now, some of us don't live on the same financial scale that some other people do. Sometimes we'd like to have more. Sometimes we need less. But the truth is, is that's not what it's all about. The renewing of our promise or the renewing of our courage says that God will take care of his very own. That's what he did with Israel. That's what he continues to do today. Then last, we see in verses 7 and 8, we see this renewing of our obedience. God will be glorified. He says, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Again, he says this, give attention, be careful to what you're doing. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the house. I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Verse number 12, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remainders of the people, the remnant, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people did fear before the Lord. I wish there was time to dissect that verse 12, but obedience brought what? Blessing and fear of the Lord. So when they find themselves obeying God, they find themselves in honor and reverence to God himself. You find that in our families, when our children are in good relation because they're, they're following instruction, they're obeying. We find this relationship of honor to mom and dad. There's not this fear of punishment. There's not this worry of by, uh, bolts of lightning coming down. It's this reverence. It's this honor to God. And that's what happened with the children of Israel. They obeyed, their hearts were stirred, they obeyed, they renewed their obedience, they did what God said, and they feared him. Verse number 13, then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. Well, that's a wonderful promise. That's great assurance. Now, here we are thousands of years later, and we take great hope that the Holy Spirit is always with us. He says to go to every part of the world, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. And then you know what he says at the end of that verse in Matthew chapter 18? He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So we know that we have this promise that he is with us. I will never leave thee nor forsake us. But for the Israelites, this was great hope because this was a renewal of obedience that said God is going to be glorified in what we do. Verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the high priest, the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. 
What a great change has taken place. Do you really care? Now what happens is Israel says, we've had a renewal of our vision. We've had a renewal of our courage. We've had a renewal of our obedience. And let's get back to the project. And let's see what God will do. And so in the fourth and 20th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. This is what happened three weeks later. They got back to work. They got back to what has happened. Why did it take three weeks? Well, we're not exactly sure. But we know that sometimes it takes a little time, takes a little thought, takes a little motivation, takes a lot of inspiration. And we find that the Israelites heard this message on the first day of September, and then 20 days later, they're back to work on the temple. Now, when Adoniram Judson, when he graduated from college and seminary, he received a call from a fashionable church in Boston to become an assistant pastor. And everyone congratulated. Everyone was so excited for Adoniram. His mother and sister rejoiced that he could live at home with them and do his life work. But Judson shook his head. He said, my work is not here. He said, God is calling me beyond the seas. To stay here, even to serve God in his ministry, I feel would be only partial obedience, and I could not be happy in doing that. Although it cost him a great struggle, he left his mother and sister to follow the heavenly call. And Judson's churches in Burma have had 50,000 converts, and the influence of his consecrated life is felt around the world. A man who was not satisfied to just do something, he had to be doing what God wanted. The exiles came out of Babylon and they got back into their land, the promised land. They did a couple of things to work on the temple, but then for 14 years they went and did their own ambitions and their own houses. But then God brought his messenger, Haggai. And Haggai gave them the message that very clearly said, It's not just one thing to come out of exile and to live back in the land that God promised you. It's not one thing to to leave the imprisonment of exile and to live back in your land and to fix a little bit of the temple. He said very clearly, God wants you to get back to work. So when I look at this series, I wonder, why this series? Why has God brought us to Haggai? Why are we going to look at that? And why now? I can say that my honest prayer is for us as a church family that we would desire and seek to be stirred by God, that we would ask for Him to stir and renew within our own hearts our vision, our purpose, our goal, our task. What are we motivated by? What are we inspired by? And how will we move ahead as Parkway Baptist Church in the days? What is our prayer to accomplish? Will you renew your vision and remember that God is first? Will you renew your courage and know that God's promises are always sure? Will you renew your obedience so that God will be glorified? The question becomes, do you really care? Father, thank you this morning for your message. Thank you for your messenger, Haggai. And so, Lord, this morning I would pray that you would shape our hearts. I thank you for how today, as the church, We have a gospel to live for, a powerful message that transformed us and a powerful message that gives us steps of growth each day. 
So, Father, I'm asking that if there's anybody here today that has never taken that opportunity to receive you as their very own, that today would be a day that they understand that. I'm thankful that one day I realized that I was a sinner in need of Jesus Christ, that I could not do things on my own, I could not accomplish good works in order to achieve heaven. Though I'm a pretty good and moral and decent person on the outside, I realize that that's not good enough when it's all said and done. Your Bible is very clear. Your word says that it's, it's by grace and faith, not by any works, lest people would boast about it. So we come before you thanking you for that amazing grace. Thank you for the ability to extend faith and that trust in you. So Lord, as sinners, draw them to yourself and save them today. As believers across this room, Lord, I don't, I don't know how you want to work and shape in our hearts. I know that it's been a renewal in my own mind in studying this text. But Lord, today, would there be something that would help them? Would be something that would motivate them? Something that would convict them and change them so they can be more like your son, Jesus? The motive tonight or today is, is not for bigger, beautiful buildings. The renewing, the rebuilding is not about the property at 4210 Lakeland Highlands Road. Renewing the rebuilding is about using us as your people to make an impact with the gospel. You allow us to use a facility like this as a tool to invite friends and neighbors and family members, co-workers. We can bring them and, and they can find a place that is safe and clean and a place that is secure and well done well. But Lord, that's just the very beginning because it's the message of the gospel that we want in their heart. We want their impression not to be of beautiful tile and ceilings, paint jobs, entry points. We want that to just transition them into hearing the love of Jesus. And so you use us as the church to prepare that way. And so through this series, will you guide us and teach us? Well, thank you for what you're going to do in these closing moments of invitation. In Jesus' name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, quick question that I want to end with. Sir or ma'am, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to express your need of Jesus in your life. And there's a lot of things that we face day in and day out, and there's a lot of teachings out there. We know that. There's a lot of people that want to say that they're pretty good and they're going to make it okay because they're a good moral person. But our Bible teaches differently. So here at our church is is not exclusive to the fact that nobody else believes this. The reality is, is that there are millions of people all around the world who are believing that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that no man goes to the Father except by Him. And so Jesus is the way, not yourself, not your works, not your history, not your heritage, and not your family line. I'm thankful that you're a good person, but your good works will do nothing for you on the other side of eternity. And so if you're sitting here, sir or ma'am, and you don't know that if you were to take your last breath today, that you would wake up in heaven. I want to encourage you to come to grips with that, to be bold enough to admit that, and to at least raise your hand and recognize to me that says, Peter, if I die today, I don't know where I would spend eternity, heaven or hell. And I would love for somebody to show me from God's word how I can know without a doubt that I'll go to heaven. If that's you today, would you just raise your hand, look at me, Say, Peter, that's me today. I, if I were to die today, I don't know where I would go. I don't know what reason I would give that I should go to heaven. And I'm afraid that if I were to die today, I might go straight to hell. 
Anybody like that today? You would just raise your hand. You'd look at me and say, Peter, that's me. Would you pray for me? That's me today. Anybody else? Anybody like that? So, sir and ma'am, all around the room, we have Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, walking along life's journey, the Christian walk. How has God shaped you today? What has he shown you? May we not leave here thinking we just came from some uh, Old Testament Bible class. That's something we have to be careful of as we dissect God's word. Because we want to get to the truth, the meat of what it is that shapes our life. So today, it's time for application. Don't just be a hearer as a student of the word. Be a doer as a disciple and follower of the word. If you'd raise your hand today, you'd just say, Peter, would you pray with me, joining collectively together? There's something that God has shown me from the message today of being renewed in my spirit, in my faith. Something that God is showing me right now. Would you just pray for me? Would you raise your hand? That's me today. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's me today, Peter. I join with you because my hand is up. I'm asking God to continue to renew my spirit, my courage, my obedience, my vision. I want God to be first place. I want his promises to be real and relevant in my life. And I want to make sure he's always glorified. How many of you would join me in this one last time? You'd say, Peter, that's me today. God's shaping my heart in that way. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Please stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Father, we just want to take a few moments, come before you, so that our hearts can be applied to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give time of application. So this time of invitation is very simple. If you're new here, this is nothing magical or mystical. All this is is a time for, for us to apply what we've heard, talking to God and putting it into our life so that we become different because of our time together today. And so as the piano plays, we're just going to have a time for prayer. And I want to give you that time right now. Either you can kneel here at the altar, you can sit at your seat, kneel at your seat, whatever it is. Just want to give you opportunity to talk to God. So I'm going to be quiet and give you that opportunity. You go to God right now.